Welcome to the 78th episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helvarg and my co-host from the Inland Ocean Coalition, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Hello, everyone. Today, we're pleased to be speaking with Linda Benkin, Executive Director of the Alaska Longline Fishermen's Association. Linda's fished commercially in Alaska for over 40 years and been at the helm of the association since 1991. Its mission is to promote sustainable fisheries and healthy coastal fishing communities through policy, research, and education. Among her many honors is a National Fisherman's Highline and a 2020 Heinz Foundation Award. Still, threats from industrial and illegal offshore fishing to climate impacts on the ocean to onshore mining and logging keep her work challenging. But before we get into all of that, Linda, why don't you tell us about your own and earliest childhood connections to the sea? Sure. Well, I I grew up on the East Coast, actually, so my first connections were with the Atlantic Ocean. Um, I my father loved the ocean, loved sailing, and my mother was a good sport. So we sent spent quite a bit of time on the water, sailing and exploring tide pools, and just learning about the ocean and all that lived in it. And where was that? Uh, out of Norwalk, Connecticut. Cool. So the Connecticut shoreline, and then uh, you eventually ended up a long way from there. What's what's the brief story of your migration north? Sure. Yeah. Let's see. Well, I grew up loving wild places and Alaska is the ultimate wild place. So um, after my first year and a half of college, I um, hitchhiked across country and took a three-day ferry up to Alaska and um, got off in Sitka and had a vague idea of earning money for college, you know, having adventure, working on a fishing boat. And it took a while to land that first job. There weren't a lot of women working in fisheries then. Um, still not enough, but there's more than was then. And I just loved it. Hooked, so to speak. Um, loved working on the water and the fishing community and just how rich and alive the ocean is up here. Linda, we met, oh my gosh, decades and decades ago. And we went through a master's program at Yale. And I remember you were so clear about wanting to go back to Alaska, working in the and to work in the fishing industry. And you really wanted to work on like best fishing practices, um, protect habitats, work on policy initiatives. And you have definitely done that. It's pretty remarkable that you stayed the course. So tell us about what you are doing now. Yeah, I went back to grad school because I wanted to be a more effective advocate for taking care of the ocean and for the small boat fisheries, because those are the people that I have found who have a really deep connection to keeping the oceans healthy. They depend on it for their livelihood, but for most of them, it's it's more than a livelihood. It's really a way of life um, that they share with their families, often raise their families in that tradition of the ocean takes care of us. We need to take care of the ocean and pass this on to the next generation. So I took over at Alpha saying the first thing I want to do is get this area close to trawling, which is, you know, heavy, hard on bottom, generally high impact industrial fishery. And from what I had seen, fishing near trawlers on the open ocean seemed really destructive in this habitat off of Southeast Alaska. And in the the first year or right before I took over running, 
Alpha, there was one trawler that came through and with one tow took enough of a locally important rockfish that it closed down that fishery for the entire year for our local fleet and also imperiled some other fisheries where those rockfish were occasionally taken as an incidental species. So we dove in and started working to close this area to trawling. It was a six-year battle, <laughs> but we eventually got there. So that that was at the time, the biggest trawl closure in the world. Now we have a bigger one in the Aleutians, um, but that really allowed us then to have an area where small boat fisheries were the priority. And we then started working with our own fleet to improve their best fishing practices. Fishermen are incredible problem solvers, super innovative. You have to be to be successful on the ocean. And working with them where they would identify a conservation challenge or managers maybe gave us a challenge that we had to live up to. And we've mapped habitat to help improve um, their fishing and also minimize impact to a sensitive habitat. We've done bycatch mapping for the for rockfish species since they're so long lived and easy to overfish to help people avoid those high bycatch areas. We've done a lot of work in improving at sea monitoring using cameras, videos, electronic monitoring, and a lot of work also to understand how our fleet can be more fuel efficient, reduce our carbon footprint. And now we're actually working on converting the first hybrid fishing boat in the country, hybrid, yeah, commercial fishing boat. So with an eye towards getting to a zero carbon footprint boat when we can. Now, people who haven't been to or lived in Alaska sort of lose a sense of the scale. When you talk about having done a trawl closure, we're talking about like 100,000 square miles. I mean, a massive area that um, you were talking about rockfish. Maybe you could describe that habitat, what was happening to it and uh, what's happening now in terms of recovery. The rockfish tend to be associated, particularly when they're juveniles, with a really complex benthic or bottom of the ocean seafloor with, and there's actually quite an abundance of cold water, deep water corals off of Southeast Alaska and, and actually all the way up in the Aleutians, there's another abundance of that. And those corals um, grow at a, you know, millimeter to a centimeter a year. So if a, you know, heavy gear, heavy nets come through and break things off, knock them over, they're not going to recover in our lifetime. And that's the complex habitat that juvenile fish depend on for cover and hiding um, when they're small, young and, and uh, vulnerable. So just protecting that coral sponge habitat, as well as the creatures that live there, um, just seemed incredibly important to me. And that's now we have that protection. The fishing that happens here is is fixed gear, hook and line, or or pot gear. That's much lower impact. It's not you know mobile being towed along the bottom. But I wanted to go back and ask you. You are the ED of the the Longline Fishermen's Association. So explain to our listeners what longline fishing is, why it's beneficial, and uh, just give us a little bit more vision about what that fishery looks like. Sure. So um, longlining, well, I should say first, so our membership at this point is very diverse. We have fixed gear fishermen, we have crabbers, we have a, people who engage in a salmon fisheries um, using gillnet seines, trolls, but longlining is what the association was built around before I took it over. And Alpha is such a great acronym. We've never changed our name. 
Um, <laughs> but so long lining is hook and line gear. Um, some people now long line with pots for sable fish because sperm whales got so good at taking sable fish off of hooks. But it's where people are, there's hooks along a line. You set it out on the bottom, leave it there for for halibut, maybe four hours for sable fish, maybe 12 to 18 hours and then go back. The line is anchored on the bottom and there's um, buoy line with buoys and flags on the surface. You can go back and find your gear. Of course, we all use GPSs to mark and find our way back to. And then it's hauled back using hydraulics, but the fish are each landed one at a time, stunned when they come on board, depending on the species. Some are cleaned right there on the boat. They're at least bled. And then they're iced or put in refrigerated seawater and brought into the communities along the coast of Southeast and the Gulf of Alaska for processing. And most of our trips, most most people are out for three to five days for a typical um, longline halibut or sablefish trip. So your members just aren't fishing for the halibut. No, Sorry. not just for the halibut. In cod we trust. I knew that was going to happen. But um, so many target species, also many communities. I mean, you've got real large communities, fishing communities like Sitka and Kodiak. And uh, how much of the population and and the economy is tied to fishing? Well, fishing, commercial fishing is Alaska's largest private sector employer. And, you know, one of the economic pillars of and drivers of of the whole state, uh, you know, a salmon is worth more than a, a barrel of oil. Uh, so yeah, we talk about it being a salmon state. It's really fishing is what what drives it up here. And I think the other aspect of Alaska that people haven't been here or miss is that our communities mean Sitka's on an island. We're not connected to any other community. We have 14 miles of road in total. You know, these communities are really remote. They're hundreds of miles away from each other. And there is no connection to other communities in most places. There really aren't alternative sources of employment or economic income. So fishing is incredibly important for people's way of life, for their income, and also for food security. So it's, yeah, it's that connection to this place. I mean, it goes back, of course, indigenous communities have relied on this really rich ocean since time immemorial um, and stewarded the resources well. And Alaska has picked up that responsibility right in our constitution. We have a commitment to sustaining fisheries. Your uh, organization has so many programs and you're talking about community now and how remote and how you really have to work together. So you guys have uh, put together a fishery conservation network and tell us about that, because it seems to be a really wonderful way to share information and stay on top of some of the challenges that you guys are are dealing with. That fishery conservation network came, started with the challenge from fisheries managers to say, this is your allocation of rockfish. You figure out how you're going to live to stay under that allocation. And we got fishermen to share with us their logbook information um, and their catch rates of their target species and their rockfish. And we also set them up to be mapping habitat. We then, from that information, could not only flag areas with high bycatch rates for the fishermen um, themselves to stay away from, but also mentor young fishermen to say, you don't need to make this mistake that someone else has made of going into this area that's 
concentrates, rockfish, you know, stay out of these areas. They're red, you know, on our map. Those are high fi cuts. Don't go in there. But then also take people's individual sets and lay that over the, the bathymetry or that seafloor habitat type. So people could see, and we, we, we actually mapped by um, quadrant. So divided the set into fourth, we had their bycatch rates by quadrant laid over from endpoint to endpoint what the seafloor looked like. And they could then see that this part of the set, their bycatch rate was fine, but they went up and over this, you know, pinnacle and the rockfish bycatch spiked. So next time you set, go around that pinnacle, you know, move your set so you don't run into that habitat. And then we, so we grew from there. Once we had these fishermen who were willing to share data with us and with each other to move ahead that the whole fleet with best fishing practices and meet conservation challenges, we started hearing from researchers that wanted to work on a, a problem maybe they identified and they wanted a fleet of willing fishermen to be um, partners in that research. So we've collaborated on a number of different projects looking at ways to understand how, say, these sperm whales were finding boats, what was attracting them, what we could do to minimize that predation and avoid any avoid conflicts, and have, you know, a number of other projects that have come up. So we started with science sort of informing what the fishermen are doing. Now fishermen are informing the science back to improve it for everybody. Yeah, so it's been a really successful initiative. Could you tell us simply what the sperm whales were doing and what's happening now? Yeah, so sperm whales, um, you know, I think during the days when when the fisheries, well, first off, sperm whales have been hunted, so they were at low levels. And then our longline fisheries were, you know, fishing derbies where the season would open, everybody was out there for a very short amount of time, and then we we're done and off the ocean. So the whales hadn't had a chance to learn about how to find a boat and take the fish off hooks. Once we went to a quota share program where people were fishing nine months of the year, the whales started learning. And we figured out through years of research that what attracts them to the boat is when we're hauling gear, we're shifting in and out of gear all the time to stay right over the line. So you're pulling it up straight and not pulling it across the bottom at all. That's the dinner bell for the whales. When they hear your boat shifting in and out of gear, they know that means you're hauling gear and they show up. So we tested a number of different deterrents and, you know, certainly didn't find anything that was, you know, the quote magic bullet. The one thing that definitely helps in some situations, we recorded the sound of a boat shifting in and out of gear. When someone's on the grounds, they can set a decoy buoy with a playback device on it that plays into the water column, that sound of a boat shifting in and out of gear. And if you set that before you go haul your line, the whales will hang out around that thinking, you know, the fish are going to show up here soon. And you can then run to your set and get a fair bit of your set back before the whales realize something's wrong and they move. That playback device was one um, of the deterrents we developed that helped. Uh, we also have worked with a towed array, something fishermen can pull behind the boat. You can listen where the whales are and it maps for you what where they are relative to your boat. So if the whales are north, you can go set south just as a way to avoid them, which is really what we found to be most effective. We did a fair bit of satellite tagging to understand, you know, the whales behavior, where they were headed and, and then broadcast that information. So fishermen knew what to do to avoid the whales. 
But ultimately, what's working best for a lot of people is to switch to pots um, because the whales are so smart. We figured, you know, we'd stay ahead of them for maybe a year or two and then they'd be on to us. <laughs> I love on your website where you have tips for avoiding whales. And number two cracked me up where it's like, try to fake out the whales. You know, <laughs> but I mean, that just is another example of how you are really protecting other animals really trying to protect the larger species and go for the targeted species. So I, it just made me so happy to see that. And it also cracked me up that uh, you have a sense of humor as you're conveying this information as well out to the public and to the other fishermen. So you talked about the 24-hour rodeo. One of my books, Rescue Warriors, the U.S. Coast Guard, America's Forgotten Heroes. I remember mm-hmm. being uh, out with the Coast Guard in Kodiak in February doing uh, fishing boat inspections. And again, it's it's a really dangerous profession. And in Alaska, I think, again, people don't understand how uh, large and rough those seas are. And maybe you could talk a little about the safety aspects of uh, commercial fishing in Alaska. Yeah, sometimes we're fishing 90 miles offshore, you know, for um, fishing for sablefish for other off southeast, you can get to the sablefish grounds. The shelf is narrower, so you're you're closer. But once you get up off, off of Yakutat or more towards Cordova, Kodiak, you're you're 90 miles out. So when the weather comes up, especially if it's blowing, you know, onto your nose and you're trying to get back in out of it, it can take a really long time. I've fished in seas that were over 20 feet. Um, it's not much fun on a small boat. And, you know, also lost some friends in storms as the derbies were particularly, particularly dangerous. The Coast Guard, they are rock stars up here with some of the rescues that they have been able to affect. But there has been a lot of work done with the fleet, with Alaska Marine Safety Education Association to help with training people to be prepared for when things go wrong, to be quick, to get your mayday off, to get in your survival suit you know, just to know how to respond, to know how to launch the life raft if a, if a helicopter shows up to help, to know how to deal with the cable, um, to get a pump up and running if they lower you one, all those, um, you know, it really, it, in the moment, it's usually horrible weather with screaming winds and a pitching boat. If you don't know how to do those things in your sleep, you're probably not going to figure it out in that moment. So training has been hugely important to improving safety up here in the fisheries. So are you fishing year round seasonally? How does the, uh, how do the regulations work with the catch? I fish seasonally seasonally because I'm busy with fisheries management. Um, There are fisheries that are going on year round. Um, Not all of them. Some are, are, you know, have a shorter season depending on what the, the target is, but there are some fisheries going on in the winter. The the um, Chinook fishery, troll fishery, hook and line fishery for um, salmon is is ongoing year round, for example. When I'm thinking about year round fisheries and all the work that you're doing, I, I, both David and I have been wondering, have you noticed any difference with climate, climate change, habitat changes? And can you elaborate on that? There have been huge changes. Yeah, I mean, the last climate change isn't something that might happen in the future up here. It's happening. The 2016 to 18, we had this huge warm blob of water that sat in the Gulf of Alaska, and we were pulling up these weird pyrosomes, you know, all these different species. And there were huge die-offs, 400,000 common mers washed up on beaches. I mean, it was heartbreaking. 
whale stranding. Yeah, it was really rough. The uh, Pacific cod stocks in the Gulf crashed 80% drop um, in two years during that time. And in the Bering Sea now, we've seen this, this complete failure of a number of crab species. And now also this failure also associated with that warm water of the returns of Yukon River chum salmon and Chinook salmon that people depend on, used to depend on for commercial fisheries as well as subsistence. And, you know, first the commercial fisheries were closed and now even subsistence has been prohibited for the last few years. So Yes, tremendous impacts, uh, very notable notable on the ocean and uh, big impacts on the people as well as the everything that lives in the ocean. You're a policy person, you're an environmentalist, you are a fisherman. From your perspective, what do we really need to do? Well, we really need to tackle climate change. That's that's number one, ocean acidification, climate change, carbon in the atmosphere. Our group has supported a carbon fee and dividend approach as a way to change the market forces out there. We are very supportive of nature-based climate solutions, um, you know, maintaining the health of the Tungus National Forest, our salmon forest, and closing the area to trawling, just having an ecosystem that has that resilience built in. That's another big step. And then for us also working on how we reduce our own carbon footprint. So that's the other initiative we're, you know, prioritizing right now. And then I think in the bigger picture, a lot of it is for conservationists, fishermen to really work together to tackle these challenges and not try to scapegoat one, one group or another. Yes, I agree, because we all want the same thing. The fishermen, the environmentalists, the policymakers, we want a healthy ocean habitat. We want clean air, plenty of food. And working together really is the key to making things move forward. The Biden administration has just taken action on logging in the Tongass and also on the Pebble Mine that has been sort of an ongoing issue. Maybe you could say what's happened with that from a fisherman's perspective? Oh, those are huge wins. I know we have worked to try and end some of the logging, particularly that was damaging to salmon streams for decades up here. And the decision to reinstate the roadless rule by this administration was just such a huge relief. We were actually part of a lawsuit contesting, ruling it back that was happened in the last administration. We just were able to, you know, we're in the process of dropping that lawsuit. It's, it's wonderful. And then, of course, for Bristol Bay, there are people who grew up in that region and for their entire lives, this threat of this giant mine has hung over them and just been this constant, you know, stress. And Bristol Bay is a place where the largest wild salmon run in the world. And those fish have been coming on strong despite some of these changes in climate and been a huge, I mean, they are the economic driver for the region and having that clean water permit that have been issued revoked so that we now can have some confidence that the the mine will never be built is just, uh, yeah, it's such, it's nice to have something big to celebrate. <laughs> I wanted to pop in and ask you about the 30 by 30 initiative where we pretty much the world, U.S. included, is trying to protect 30% of land and 30% of ocean by 2030. And so how does the fishing community feel about that? 
Well, I, when that initiative was first introduced, it spoke to closing commercial fisheries and other destructive ocean uses. That was when it came out in Congress. And I was really troubled by that um, because we need to start to recognize there are sustainable fisheries, there are sustainable ways to farm, sustainable ways to ranch, and there are unsustainable ways to do all those things. And clearly we have a lot to learn, particularly from people who have stewarded these resources long before we were here. But if we don't, if we if we think we can protect protect by pushing everybody out, thirty percent of lands and waters, and have our planet be okay, particularly in the face of climate change, I think we're fooling ourselves. That really we need to practice conservation across the whole globe, and we need to start to recognize and follow the lead of those businesses, those communities, those cultures who are doing it right, and to incorporate into our conservation of place and of resources, models that work. So regenerative farming, restorative ranching, sustainable fisheries that, that are supporting local economies, providing food security, those have to be part of that solution. So I'm really excited. Once once the executive order 14008 came out for the America the Beautiful, I'm super excited about what's possible now and really want to see us do more following the principles that that laid out to achieve those conservation goals. And some of the most successful marine protected areas have been mapped out by fishing communities in Port Orford, Oregon, or Viejos, uh, Puerto Rico, because they know where the nurseries are. They know where things need to be protected. We just recently interviewed a woman who had to leave her whale science to fight salmon farms off of British Columbia. And in Alaska, you never had salmon farms, I guess, because fishermen and women are a powerful political force there. Yeah, it was clear what they would have done to wild stocks in other parts of the world. And why would you repeat the same mistakes? Exactly. And David just made a statement, and I wanted to clarify. Linda, are you a fisherman or something else? I've always been fine with being a fisherman. You know, some people think it should be a fisher or a fisherwoman. Those labels have never mattered much to me. Well, I I was talking with a fisherman and he said, yeah, I don't like being called a fisher. I go, well, you know, that's an endangered species. He he went, (laughs) oh, well, maybe I do have uh, something in common. (laughs) (laughs) Might might be a benefit. (laughs) Linda, it is coming close to our time together. And I just want to thank you so much for being on the Rising Tide Ocean podcast and for helping the fishermen team up with the environmentalists, with the policymakers. We really need more people like you out there really understanding the the connections and and doing great things for the ocean. Well, right back at you and David. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helberg and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curla. Rising Tide's editing services and technical support is provided by Studio Kate May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbarg. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. 
Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear It's true, it's the blue frontier Tear, tear, Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.